Welcome back to episode 33 of the Run Culture Podcast. My name's Dane Verwey and today I had the pleasure to interview lead researcher and exercise physiologist at the AIS for the past 20 years, Philo Saunders. Philo Saunders has been a part of some 80 plus studies over the last 20 years, some of which have been on altitude training, heat training, plyometric training, minimalist running, running economy and many other interesting topics that a lot of us runners would find very interesting. But on top of this, Philo is also a lead coach um, and coaches a lot of Australia's best Paralympic distance runners and has a great able-bodied distance running crew as well, many of whom are real prospects to make Tokyo Olympics 2020. And if this wasn't enough, Philo also had an amazing and still continues to have an amazing career of running himself. Largely focusing on the 1500 metre event, he's broken 3 minutes 50 about 130 times and has been a finalist in the Australian National 1500 metre championships an amazing number of times as well. Philo loves running is really positive and really um, a great person to chat with, very approachable. I've loved getting to know Philo over the last four or five years. Welcome, Philo Saunders. Welcome to the Run Culture Podcast. My name is Dane Verway. I'm an experienced runner and running physiotherapist. I created this podcast not only so I had an excuse to talk running each and every week, something that I love to do, but more importantly, this podcast gives me the opportunity to interview fellow runners, friends and health professionals in a relaxed and easygoing format. This podcast is designed for the everyday runner, so we can all live, learn, grow and enjoy everything there is to running together. I hope you enjoy the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to episode 32 of the Run Culture podcast. Today, I've got the pleasure to chat to Philo Saunders, who's a renowned uh, running coach, um, was a great, is still a great runner himself, um, and an exercise physiologist at the AIS, um, and has been in that role for a, a number of years. So thanks, Philo, for you know, um, giving up your time and, um, yeah, having a chat on the podcast. No, no problems, Dane. Always good to chat about running and, um, yeah, more than happy. Yeah. Well, what I wanted to start off, you know, this year's an Olympic year and, uh, I want, um, I had the pleasure to, you know, be the physiotherapist, um, on your Flagstaff trip, um, in sort of September, October last year. Um, but I just wanted to, um, see where all your athletes are at and um, um, how, how they're sort of um, measuring up coming into 2020. Yep. Yeah, no, it's a massive year. Um, yeah, like I've been, been part in the past of like world champs um, and Olympic, Paralympic preparations, but I think this year is probably sort of, yeah, the most exciting and the most number of athletes I've had um, sort of knocking on the door of making teams and um, in the Paris space, like really trying to win gold medals um, at the Paralympics. So, yeah, it's really exciting. Um, so, yeah, like my group's grown over the years um, and I've got a mix of able body and para-athletes. Um, yep. So, for the para side of things, obviously got uh, Michael Roger, who's a T46 arm amputee, um, won the gold medal last year in the marathon of the world champs and silver medal on the 1500 in Dubai. Um, so he'll be preparing for the marathon only. Like we've sort okay. of tossed up whether we were going to do both. Um, last year was sort of a bit of a transition. You're going from 1500 to marathon um, and just yep. the way he's taken to road running, marathon running. He loves it. He does, and he's yeah, he's good at it. Like it's, yep. I think it's where his strengths are, it's where his capacities are, and um, yeah. How did, how did Houston go? Houston went awesome. So he yep. went, uh, he got under two twenty. So he went two nineteen. Um, yep. Broke his 
broke his world record by over three minutes, which yep. was really good. Um, and still more there. Like, I think uh-huh. he got faster every marathon. He still hasn't finished one strong, where he's sort of been happy that he's sort of been able to run through the line. Yep. Still struggled with a little bit of cramping, which he's had in each of the marathons he's run. But um, each one just seems to be getting better. Um, and I think, as you know, you've done a lot of marathons yep. and you've trained yep. for them. I think each preparation, you sort of just yeah. get a bit stronger for the next one. So, exactly. Um, few little things of playing around with to try and work on the cramping. Um, but, yeah, I'm really confident going into Tokyo that he can not just win the gold medal, but like probably destroy the field and do it yep. pretty comfortably. So um, yeah. he's going really well. Um, nice. We're going to do Boston Marathon as one more hit out before Tokyo in, I think it's the 20th of April. Um, oh, that's right. I remember him mentioning that. Yeah, so there, um, and it's good. Like a lot of the big marathons are starting to integrate um, like the para-athletes into their events. So Boston have put on, uh, para category this year with some prize money and some support to get uh, people like Michael over. Um, but with his time in Houston, he, he'll start with the elite guys as well. So he'll run with the elites, um, see what he can do, but then also compete in the T46 class, um, which will, they'll be promoting a bit of Boston. So that'll be pretty exciting. Oh, that's great. Um, so yeah, all, all things going really well there. Um, obviously, yeah, as I said, trying to get on top of that cramping. Um, obviously, going to be hot and humid in the Paralympics and the Olympics for the marathon, so making sure we're well prepared for that. So we did a lot of work last year um, in the lead-up to Dubai, and we'll sort of um, yeah follow a similar protocol, probably a little bit more um, work, just so he's, he's really confident with his pacing, his um, feeding strategies, drinking strategies during the race, um, so he can start hit the start line, um, ready to achieve that gold medal at the Paralympics, which he's never got. So that's pretty exciting. What, um, what are some of the um, theories that you have about his cramping at the moment? Is, do you think it's still just that transition from the 1500s to the marathon and he's still still just working on the leg strength? Or, yeah. I think it's, well, I think it's related yeah. to that. Um, yeah. I think... Obviously, he doesn't have it as bad in training as a marathon. So I think it's the duration and the speed of yep. going for everything a marathon. Like, I'm sure if he went out and ran 225 for a marathon, he wouldn't have it. Yep. I think it's just like when he's going right at the limit of his capabilities, it's sort of just that the damage to the muscles, like I suppose the function of the muscles towards the end um, that's really causing the cramping. Rather, yep. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't think it's a nutritional issue, although there has been some evidence um, that pickle juice um, can sort of um, reduce the onset of muscle cramps. Uh, We've been doing a little bit of work with Dr. David Hughes here, and that's something we probably will trial at Boston just to see if it has any effect, um, whether he can handle it, um, and if it makes a difference, like maybe use that going into Tokyo. Um, That that wouldn't be the nicest um, drink to have. No, I wouldn't have thought so. I don't think he's a, he's a big pickle fan. I know he takes them out of his hamburgers. <laughs> but I'm sure he'll, um, if it makes a difference, he'll, he'll deal with the taste. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, nice. Yeah, so that's all good. Um, yeah, no, really, really happy. I had a few, few little sort of niggles sort of in the last, period before Houston, but we managed them well, got into the start line, got a big PB and um, had a, like a bit of recovery time after that. And he seems like he's going really well body-wise. Um, and I think the nature of how far he's ahead of his um, his class, we don't have to go for everything and take too many risks going into Tokyo, which will be good. Yep. in a good position just to have another two good preparations for Boston and then Tokyo and yeah, go and get the job done. So um, really oh, looking forward to it. That's so exciting. Yeah. Um, and so with all the para boys, um, we'll be going to flag stuff again. So yep. we'll do some heat acclimation here, just in the environmental chamber um, that we've got at um, University of Canberra that sort of um, AIS have got a partnership with. So we'll do some work in that in the June-July period and we'll go over to flag stuff, which is their summer. So we still get plenty of good warm weather training and obviously the increase in aerobic capacity at altitude, which we've been doing for the last decade. Um, and from there, we're going to Cairns just for our final staging camp 
Um, Just, yeah, last few sessions. I think Michael will spend 10 days in Cairns before he goes into Tokyo. And, yeah, we aim to get into Tokyo as late as we can. Um, We're going to do all our preparations just in our um, little group and making sure stay injury-free, illness-free, and then sort of into the village as late as possible and compete. So that's our plan. Um, Sounds good. And then the other boys. So obviously Jared's probably the next sort of on the – um, like likely to win a gold medal. So Jared Clifford, who's a T12 visually impaired athlete, um, and he won double gold at the World Championships in Dubai, which was yeah really exciting. Um, just being sort of involved with Jared from a junior up until sort of being the best in the world. So his progression's been awesome, and um, yeah, he hasn't missed a beat. He just sort of been improving every year, just getting the job done. Um, and yeah, Dubai was just reward for his hard work and his ability, really. Um, yeah. So that was good. He won the 1500 meters, which he runs on his own. Um, and the T12 class um, are impaired enough to have a guide runner. So the 1500 meters, he could have one guide, which is just a bit hard, just with the tactics of a 1500 and the pace change. And yep. he's quite a good racer, so you sort of don't want to lose that by having a guide um, tethered, but the yep. 5K, you can have two guides. So last year was our real trial with how that was going to work. So it was actually myself was one of the guides and his um, long-time training partner, Tim Logan, was the other guide. So um, that worked really well. So we, um, and I wasn't sure how it was going to work, but it went really smooth and Jared, yeah, kicked down, won the gold medal in the 5K. And I almost think after that, it's probably his best chance to win a gold in Tokyo just yeah, okay. because of his change of pace, like because of the hot weather in Tokyo, it's not going to be fast. And I think like that race is just going to play into his hands. Like yep. it'll be um, within his capabilities. Like I think he won in 1440 in Dubai. I think, um, yeah, we'll be really confident. We'll all be really well prepared with flag stuff and cans. Um, and yeah, we'll have the same sort of tactics. I'll sort of take him through halfway in position and then Tim will just sort of be there with him ready to go. And I, I can't see anyone running with them in the last lap. So yep. it should be exciting. The order's different. It was a 1500 first in Dubai and the 5k second and Tokyo it's reverse. So you have to do the 5k first and then okay. re- recover two or three days later for the 1500. So um, be another challenge, but um, we're going to do a little bit of practice in the next month with the Melbourne Uni 5K and then the Miles Club two days later where we'll do a 1500, so. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. So, yeah, that's all all really good. Really happy with us going. Um, obviously and we and have you, a... you and Tim are going all right? Yep. Uh, yeah, Tim, yeah, Tim had a few little niggles um, sort of after Flagstaff in Dubai, so he probably isn't in the same shape he was this time last year, but he seems to be on top of all those and moving well, so. I think he's planning to, um, I think, run the 1500 of Vic Champs and Nationals and then maybe do a couple of 5Ks over in the US because he sort of feels like he's missed um, some races over here just with um, being a little bit held back from the injuries. Um, yep. So, yeah, no, he's going well again. And I'm yeah confident he'll be in tip-top shape come Tokyo. Um, yeah, and I've been ticking along nicely. Um, yeah, <laughs> training pretty consistently. Got a good group here. Um, yeah, it's been an interesting year competition-wise. I don't feel like I've raced as much as previous years and definitely not as many high-quality races where I had the ability to run quick. But, yeah, I got to feel like I'm in sub-350 shape for 15 at the moment and, yeah, nice. probably 14.20, 14.30 shape for 5K, I think. So, um, yeah, just keep trying to stay consistent, keep the body in good order, which it seems to be at the moment. And, um, yeah, get a real good block and flag stuff like every year over there. I'll get in probably the best shape I am all year. So that's the plan to use um, going to yeah. Tokyo. So obviously Tim and I don't have to run the full distance, but the better yeah. shape we're in, the easier it is for all three of us. Obviously, if we're struggling a bit, um, it impairs that sort of rhythm and fluency. So, yeah, and obviously yeah. the better shape you're in, the more feedback you can give to Jared. Yeah, splits about positioning and um, all those aspects of the race that guiding can be useful for, not just taking them around the track. Yeah, nice. 
Um, and then what about did Sam Harding? Does Sam Harding know if he's qualified or not? Or yeah. Not so so the other two para athletes um, that I've got in the squad are yeah Sam, who's in the same class as Jared. He's a T twelve. Um, so he has got two B qualifiers. Um, so the selection policy for the paras is a bit different than AA. Uh, the able body, I mean, for AA. Yep. Um, so basically, you have to have two qualifiers to be in the running. So if you've only got one qualifier, it doesn't matter if it's an A or a B, you can't get selected. Um, okay. But if you've got two qualifiers, yeah, your hat goes in the ring. Obviously, there's different circumstances for someone who's like Jared or Rogues who's won the world champs, but that's basically the... Um, the procedure, so you're two times, and then um, obviously if the A qualifiers, you're going to be placed ahead of B qualifiers if there's a quota for the team. Um, but if there's no quota, anyone with two B qualifiers will get selected. So um, Sam's yes. in good position to make his first team since 2012, which is, yeah, really exciting. Um, and, yeah, really pleasing. Like someone who works really hard and hasn't had this success of, other members of our squad like he sort of just does all the work does all the trips on his own back and um obviously the goal for him is to get back on the australian team so yeah making tokyo is going to be like yeah massive success for him me the squad like everyone sort of around him to get there um and the way he's running at the moment he's not out of a chance of winning the medal so yep he ran 353.7 in a in his first race after the flagstaff trip last year it was Actually, I think day two of Dubai. So we were in the midst of our sort of world champ campaign. And I think everyone was just as excited for Sammy running that time as <laughs> all the rest of the squad, Mike winning medals at Dubai. So, um, yeah, so he ran that, which is almost an A qualifier. I think he A's two, 352 and a bit. Um, so he's just outside the A. Um, and then he's the second B of 356 in Perth as well. He's run. Yes. Another couple of 357s, which is just outside. So, um, yeah, he's in a real good position um, to get on the team. For... Uh, such a good story because um, his first Paralympics, didn't he not compete? He didn't or... compete. He got glandular yeah. fever. Yeah, so he was an 800-meter runner. He trained with Irena Divaskina here um, in Canberra, the AIS. Um, was back when Rogues was with Irena, so they were... Um, training partners at that time and um, yeah they both made the team for the 800 um, neither of them competed for different reasons and yeah Sam hasn't made a team since so um, yeah. I suppose the story is since London they got rid of the 800 in his class so um, para don't necessarily have every event in the class and that's why Rogues went from 1500 to marathon because that's the only events he's got um, and Sam basically had to run either 400 metres or 1500 um, yeah. I think with Irina's skill set and the training he'd been doing, they thought the 400 was a better chance. So he spent um, the next period of time trying to qualify in the 400 metres. Um, and it just wasn't happening. I don't think he was cut out to be a sprinter. Um, 400 qualifying times were just a bit beyond him. So um, they both made the decision that he was going to transition to 1,500 metres and start training with me um, and my squad. So... Since probably 2015, um, yeah, we've been trying to transition him to a distance runner, middle distance runner, um, and yeah, he's it's taken a while as it does when you haven't got the background in distance running, but like, yeah, every year he's got a bit better. And yeah, the last 12 months he's made some real gains, like, you would have saw, seen him train in flag stuff and yeah, saw how well he was going, and um, yeah, he just sort of seems like he's. He's made that transition. He's absorbing the training. He's consistent. Um, and he, yeah, he knows how to race 1500s now. So how to put it on the line in those middle laps when it's tough. And yeah, because I I think I saw him in 2015 or 16 um, when I helped out on the Flagstaff trip. Um, and then I didn't see him until um, last year, and he was a completely different runner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. No, so yeah, it's really exciting. So um, yeah. Fingers crossed he'll get selected, which I'm pretty confident with. And then, yeah, yeah. it'll be trying to get him on the um, the podium as well with Jared. That'd be pretty pretty yeah. amazing. We can have like Jared and Sammy both on the podium at Tokyo. So uh, <laughs> good, yeah. And then I've also got Dion Kenzie, um, yep. who is a previous world champion in the 1500 in the cerebral palsy class T38. Um, so yeah, Dion's going really well too. So he got a bronze in. Um, 
Dubai um, after winning a gold medal two years before in London um, for a couple of reasons. Like his class has changed a bit. There's a Canadian guy who's a low 350 runner who's just been classified. So that changes the event a bit for him. Um, and yeah, like he obviously needs to get better, um, which he is. And we've made, he had a little bit of a hamstring issue going in, which he would have known about, yep. which I think held him back a bit going into Dubai. He sort of, we get some good sessions done, but really struggled with recovering from those. So the momentum wasn't really there. Um, he probably didn't have the best race either. Um, he probably should have got silver. Like there's an Algerian guy who he's, I don't think ever got beaten by who just got past him in the last couple hundred for the silver medal. But um, yep. his goal is really to get back on the top of the podium and get a gold. So um, we're working really hard at the moment. He's in really good shape. He ran 401 in the Para 1500 in Sydney. Yeah. And I think he's capable of going like 355 in the next few races. Um, yep. The New South Wales champs and national champs. So, um, and that's what we want to do. We want to get his time down to get him confident that he can compete with the Canadian guy um, in Tokyo. Nice. And then um, also um, you coaching Keely, Keely Small and, and Millie Clark? Yep. So, yeah, and the able body, I've got a bunch of yep. athletes who I coach as well who, yeah, train with all the athletes we've already been talking about. So, yeah, Keely and Millie are two of them. And Paige Campbell's probably the other big yep. um, um, likelihood to make Tokyo. Um, so those three girls were trying to trying to get on the team. Each of them got slightly different paths, and I suppose their events are slightly different to qualify for. So yeah, they're all going really well. Um, Millie's in the shape of her life at the moment, so she obviously ran two twenty eight, pretty much two twenty eight flat at Gold Coast last year, um, but which was an automatic qualifier which in any other event would put her on the team. But in the women's marathon, there's four girls who have run um, under the time and she's ranked fourth at the moment. So, um, yeah, she needs to run faster to get on the team. Um, Lisa Waitman ran 2.26.02, I think, in um, – where was it? It was in Japan somewhere, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was just the other day. Um, yeah. Uh, so – Nagoya? No. Yeah, Nagoya or Osaka, maybe. So, yeah, yeah, one of them. But, yeah, so that's a time we're chasing because um, Sinead, Diver and Ellie Pashley have also got it. I think Sinead's around 2.24 and Ellie's, I think, 2.26.23. But I'm expecting Ellie to run faster in London than that. So, to be sure of it, we're going to try to get under 2.26 at Rotterdam. Um, yep. She does that. I think she'll be on the plane to Tokyo. Um, and if she doesn't, then... It's going to be a nervous waiting game to see um, if all those three athletes, um, yeah, yeah, obviously run faster than Millie does at Rotterdam first. And then, yeah, whether they select to run the marathon, I think Ellie's got a 10K qualifier as well. So, um, but yeah, we want to yep. take the decision. So it's just basically she could select on merit. So yep. that's, our, that's our aim. She's doing the New York half. I think three weeks before as a bit of a hit out and then she'll go over to Rotterdam to race there. Nice. So, yeah, hasn't missed a beat. Like she was going to do Houston, so a little bit of a calf niggle and we just didn't want to risk it. So we just had a few days off and then re refocused on Rotterdam. So, and since then she been, yeah, she's been fine. Yeah. I think she's ready to go under 226, whether she does it or not. There's another story, but like you just got to get in position that you've got the capability to do it, which I, yeah, totally believe she can. Yeah. Um, yeah, Keely, um, yeah, it's going, going real well. Like, awesome, awesome person, awesome athlete, <laughs> one of the best juniors going around. And, like, yeah, as a lot of people know, it sort of can be hard sometimes for those standout juniors to really, like, keep going, like, when they sort of excel at a young age. So, yep. yeah, we've just been trying to, yeah, do enough to keep improving, not sort of burn her out. Um, like, but, yeah, also keep trying to progress and make teams um, where she can. Um, obviously, she made the Able Body Com Games in 2018 and ran a PB in the heats of two minutes, which was awesome. She won Youth Olympics that same year. Um, yeah, and little few little niggles here and there, which have held her back. She didn't race them, but in general, she's... Um, improved at all aspects of her training um, each year. So 
I think she's ready to have a real crack um, at the Olympics. It's obviously pretty tough if she doesn't do an auto qualifier. So I think 159.5 the auto. So in the ideal world, she runs that and that's all she has to do. But otherwise, she has to do – it's the average of your best five performances for the 800. So that means she needs five good performances and um, the place points become important too. So, um, yeah, for those who don't understand the system, like meets uh, – classified based on their, I suppose, competitiveness and other factors, and you get points for finishing different places at those meets. So um, Australia probably hasn't got as many high-profile meets as other countries, so we're limited a little bit in that, but um, we've got a couple of big ones coming up with uh, Queensland Track Classic and Nationals, which I think are A, a or Bs. I think Nationals are B, okay. Queensland might be an A, so... She can run fast at those and finish in the top few. That's going to be put her in good stead to hopefully chase a couple of other good meets after nationals. Nice. Um, so that's our plan with Keeley. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, Paige in the 3,000 steeple and the 5K. I think at the moment she's sort of in position to qualify for both. The steeple's probably the more likely of the two because um, she won Oceana Champs, got big points for that. It's only the average of three performances she came second at Sydney track class the other night with a PB of 9.44 and then yeah good performance at nationals I think would almost um, yeah seal her um, selection yeah um, and then potentially she'll try to uh, auto in the 5k as well maybe in um, the US which is 15.10 so um, yeah she's in good position and going well um, yeah, so three three chances, or all, all got a bit of work to do. But yeah, it'd be nice to get um, all of them on the Olympic team as well as the para guys. Yeah, no, it's um, what I was just thinking then, as you're you know talking about all of them, and you obviously know all your athletes so well. But um, I remember in Flagstaff, you showed me an Excel spreadsheet of all the, all the athletes training and how you keep track of it on the computer. Uh, how how do you find keeping track of everyone's training and um and uh yeah keeping on top of everyone because you you do coach like a, a wide array of athletes like marathoners fifteen hundred hmm. steeplechase um Paralympic um runners as as well like how do you find that Yeah, it's obviously the more athletes you got, the more complex it is. And obviously the higher the level of the athletes, the more complex it becomes as well. Um, I suppose when I started coaching, it wasn't as big as it is now. Um, so you can focus a lot more on one or two athletes, getting them ready, um, putting more time in. But yep. um, yeah, I suppose it's just a skill that I've always had, being able to multitask and yep. think about lots of things. Um, yeah, like it takes a lot of mental time. Like you have to consider a lot of things, what you do, what different athletes need, because um, obviously they're not all at the same position at any point in time, and it's not a matter of just setting a training session that everyone does. So there's a lot of thought that goes in to try and get the best out for each athlete. So, um, yeah, like, I, like you said, I keep an Excel spreadsheet, each athlete's a separate sheet, and I, yeah, like, I plan all their training. If I change things, I'll change it in there. So, yep. um, for one, it's a good historical re record. You can sort of go back and see what you've done in certain preps, what worked well, um, different sessions um, will come and go. Um, yep. But, yeah, I find it a good good way of keeping track of where any athlete is at the time, but also sort of what they've done in the past as well. So yep. um, that's sort of my, I suppose, record keeping yep. of like what people are doing. But yeah, a lot of it's just, yeah, seeing where they're at training, talking to them, seeing what they need, watching their races, um, just a bit of a feel for, um, yeah, like where they're at any given time. Uh -huh. um, obviously you think about the preparation and you're focusing on different things, but Sometimes you do need to like fine tune, um, yep, and then have the ability to change is important. Yep, yeah, I, I saw that uh, firsthand, sort of on the Flagstaff trip. Um, how much like your role as a coach was more than more than just setting the program, and uh, it was almost you know just being there, um, you know, creating a good environment for all the athletes and a, a, an environment where they all felt happy and comfortable and um everyone 
yeah, it was more it was more than just setting the program. Um, I could really see that firsthand. Yeah, and yeah, I think to be successful hiking such a competitive and high high demand sport, um, yeah, you have to have a lot of belief. Like you have to, um, yeah, you have to be happy. You have to be driven. You have to be um, confident in your ability, and that's the sort of environment I try to create. Like environment where people are sort of get along well um just as happy with other people in the squad's results as their own yep um and almost just feeding off each other and just wanting to be the best they can be so yeah um yeah i'm really happy with the squad i've got they're all awesome people they all um really good to be around and yeah and 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 yeah (laughs) no i could really see that like the whole squad um was so excited for everyone's um results if they had a good training session everyone got around everyone um yeah it was really clear like you fostered a really good um Mm. yeah energy in the group yeah 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 and i think that's something i've learned over the years as being an athlete like i think the times i've run my best is when you've got a real cohesive squad that's working together and pushing each other along um you sort of see someone have a real good race where you know you've been training at the same level and you think like i can do the same thing like it and just sort of just keep pushing each other along. So I think it's a real healthy um, environment to try and get. Like, obviously, you can do it on your own, but it is, in a way, a team sport if you can get the right team. Um, and a lot of the best athletes have got a good team around them. So yep. that's what I've tried to create in our squad. Yeah, and, and then, um, like, what I also wanted sort of to delve into um, was the fact that, yeah, not only are you going um, really well with your coaching right now and got a great squad, but you also had had quite a, a long career as a runner yourself. Um, and um, I've forgotten how many times you said you've broken three fifty for the fifteen hundred, but um, close to one hundred and thirty. I think, yeah, like one hundred and thirty. Um, yeah, around <laughs> about one hundred and thirty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, I. Like I wanted to sort of, and you, you showed me on the Excel spreadsheet again. Um, I reckon, oh, I don't know how many years of training it was, but it looked like it was about 20 years of training documented, like your training. Yeah, at least I think I've got, um, I think from about 2009 in that spreadsheet. Yeah, okay. So probably like 11 years, 11 years, but then I've got everything else documented in other forms probably yeah from when i started running so i remember like sometimes i'll pull out my handwritten training diaries from 2004 2005 which are probably my like most consistently highly performing years like i think i ran 341 342 343 like a bunch of times and like sub 150 800 so yeah i like just looking back and sort of what sort of stuff was i doing in that time um so yeah, I think documented training is like really useful as a as a coach and as an athlete. You can sort of um, yeah retrospectively look and analyze sort of what went into performance. Um, and you can't just do it by a week. You have to sort of look what went into that whole preparation and how it was structured. And um, yeah, it allows you to sort of analyze things. Yep. Um, so, like fr- from that, um, and I know everyone's different. Um, but from your personal experience with your own um, self, um, with the 1500 and, and 3K, um, what were some of your sessions um, when you're sharp, sharpening up um, in, say, that last sort of several months what, that you really felt got, got you fit? Yeah, so I think for the 1500, it's getting the balance right. Like, I think yep. you can go too far in that sort of anaerobic tolerance 1500 meter pace work and if you drop off the aerobic system too much like you don't run as well like you probably for short period you can but i think that um yeah like the consistency performance will drop off a bit so i think it's just getting the balance right in the 1500 like you definitely need some of that um i know when i run my pbs i did a lot of that 1500 meter lactic tolerance high intensity stuff which gets you like really strong and like able to sort of push hard in those middle laps of the race. But I think you've also got to have that aerobic system. Like running a 1500 is predominantly aerobic. Like you've got to have speed and you've got to have tolerance. But if you haven't worked on the anaerobic system, the aerobic system and the threshold and all the long runs, um, I don't think you'll get optimal performance. So I think 
the structure of training in the 1500s critical and it's probably one of the hardest events to get right because yep. I think you can be too heavy on certain areas at times. Um, so, yeah, like I try to keep the structure, like touching on different systems all year round and then just having different focuses where you might do, yeah. So, yeah, what are some key sessions I've done? Like um, I remember back... Um, in 0405 we do stuff like four 600s off maybe four minute recoveries yep. running probably 125s that type of running so like quite quick um yep. eight 400s in 58s with maybe two minutes recovery um yep. some broken 1500s like we've done in the past so you might go 800 400 300 or 600 500 400 300 200 um with short recovery just trying to get that sort of pace and feel of running a 1500 yeah um 500s have been like something i've used a lot in the past with 1500 meter running four or five 500s trying to run low 70s yeah um, <laughs> yeah i can mean, obviously you need decent recoveries and each rep gets a bit tougher but it sort of just tries to replicate um what's in there but mm-hmm. also doing stuff by threshold most weeks so things like um yeah, two by three k, three by two k, yeah, two by five minutes, three by two minutes, um, and all that sort of at that threshold pace. So not all out running, just trying to run, improve your threshold capacity, and I think that helps you getting through to twelve hundred feeling good in a fifteen hundred if that aerobic system's yep um, activated, um, yeah, and consistency in the long run. Like we, if we're not racing on a Sunday, like, yeah, there wouldn't be many Sundays we'd miss a long run. And um, for a 15 runner, I'd be somewhere between um, 20 and 30K, depending on where we are in the year and what else we're doing. Yep. So, um, and I think 1500 volume is important to a certain extent. Like, I think you may need to be doing for male 1500 meter runners at least over 100Ks a week. Um, I think I've always been my best races sort of between sort of that yeah, 110, 140 type volume-wise. So, yeah, there's quite a bit of running. Um, yep. And the other thing, I suppose, probably, in, probably some respects for running well, but the longevity in 1500 is like good strength conditioning. I've been recruiting the right muscles, running efficiently, not over-using things just because you're deficient in areas. So, like, I do a lot of work in the gym, which... Yep. Um, a lot of plyometric work, a lot of lifting, um, just to try and be strong and um, you have good mechanics when you're running because I think that's critical. Like, obviously, you need to be able to run fast, but you need to be able to do it efficiently so you can finish off in a 15. Yep. Um, you, and yeah. And I wanted to, like, touch on that because, like, you're 43 now and, yeah. and you're still running really well um, and there's not many 43-year-olds still doing the 1500. Um, do you think some of your longevity in the sport is attributed to you still doing those Olympic lifts and plyometrics in the gym? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'm still running fast. Like, I think I could run just as fast over 100 metres as I've ever run. Um, and that's because we, yeah, I always work on it. Like, I always yep. do sprinting. I also do some power work in the gym. Yep. Always touching on those lactic sessions where you're um, running fast. So, um, yeah, and I think as you get older, like once you start, once you stop doing that type of work, you're probably, yeah, you probably lose a bit of muscle function and capacity, I think. So I think it's really important just to keep tendon strong, muscle strong. um, Yeah. And the ability to run fast. So um, yeah. And I I suppose I just, I've run the 15 because I think it's my best distance. Um, Well, I've I've run a lot of other distances and um, I just think it's where my physiology is. So, and it's probably what I get the most enjoyment out of running well. Like I, I, I probably don't run as consistently over the race as I used to, but the good ones I still get just as much satisfaction out of now than I did like back when I was running my best. Yep. Um, and, yeah, just wanted to um, also touch on, so um, I just did a quick sort of Google search and looked at how many um, papers you've um been a part of um in terms of your exercise physiology um and um yeah i found like 81 publications on research gate um that you'd been a part of and and one of them in 2004 was um about um uh increasing running economy um yep. and 
it said um, you sort of sort of um, mentioned that to improve running economy, um, strength training is like a really important part of of training, and and then you sort of also mentioned uh, altitude training. Um, uh, but yeah, trying to trying to improve, um, uh, yeah, yeah, hemoglobin mass, and that, but then also your stiffness in your muscles. Yeah, uh, yeah. With with training, when you're coming up with a training session, or uh, how how often is research sort of governing what you choose to do, and and how often is what you've experienced yourself personally governing? Mm, yeah. yeah, I think it's a it's a mix. Yep. I think I'm pretty pretty fortunate, obviously, that I've been involved in a lot of areas of the sport. So I probably came came to Canberra in 2001 to do a PhD in exercise physiology. Um, and yep. like I wasn't coaching at all. I was still competing. I was training at a high level. I had a lot of ambitions in the sport to keep running. And I suppose a big factor coming here was to get in with uh, elite runners and join the training squad. So it was almost a perfect opportunity for, to grow as a coach. Like I got, yep. I got to compete with a lot of good athletes. I got to see how a lot of good coaches worked across sports, not just athletics, but like other sports like swimming, triathlon, cycling. Um, and you get a lot of ideas on like how to coach, how to, um, set a training session. Um, but then the research just adds to that. Like you sort of, all the research is focused on improving performance. So like my PhD was trying to improve running economy because running economy was one of the most important aspects of endurance performance. So if you can improve that, you should be able to run better. So, um, yeah, during my research, I got involved in altitude training, which I use every year. Um, I think it's, critical aspect of improving endurance capability so we go to flagstaff every year um this year i didn't go to perisher because of the fires and last year just because it didn't work out but before that i think i've been up to perisher once or twice every year since 2001 so um yeah yeah that's part of i think success of me as an athlete i get in regular altitude exposure at the right times um, for important periods of training or competition um, and the other aspect like that I really sort of have incorporated is the strength training, as you said. So, yeah, I did a research um, study during my PhD and a lot of follow-up work. And, yeah, I talked to a lot of athletes and coaches what they do and try to learn how to maximise um, that aspect of training. So we get in the gym twice a week. Um, we do a lot of functional stuff to try and improve capacity and it's different depending on the runner so someone like Keely who's a lot more power based than the 800 will do it a lot of Olympic lifts a lot of like plyometrics a lot of like sprinting with bands and sleds um whereas someone like Rogues is all about sort of just trying to be more efficient so keeping the tendons supple um keeping the glute strong um yep. hammy strong um so you can p- become efficient and resilient so just trying to gear the programs in um nice. but yeah no I find I don't think I necessarily think of specifically what the research says, but mm-hmm. like I think the research and the knowledge I've got dictates the way I think. Yeah. So when I think of structuring a program, I've got that ingrained knowledge that I can call upon. Yeah. Whereas someone who mightn't have had like the opportunity to yeah, see as much as I've had or I've been involved as much, I mightn't think that way. So, yeah, I think it's both. Like, it's obviously yep. based on stuff I've tried, stuff I've seen, people I've talked to, but it's also been, yeah, research projects I've been involved with and knowledge I've gained in that area. Yeah. Um, well, I so could, I think they... I could certainly see that because I just, you know, my experience at Flagstaff and then just get, I just, you know, ran through like um, a few of the studies last night just having a look and, I was like, oh, okay. There's there's some studies on strength training. There's some studies on altitude training. Um, there's studies on heat training, on yeah, that's um, right. minimalist footwear, on on iron supplements, supplementation. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a lot of that stuff, like you're you're aware of, and you're you're sort of telling the athletes to sort of think about. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, now it's been. Yeah, like I said, I've been pretty fortunate the career path I've had and uh, like people I've been around and learned from. So, yeah, and I think that's why I enjoy coaching so much because I can try and pass some of that um, knowledge and experience onto others to try and um, hopefully um, have their progression a little bit more unhindered and 
straightforward. They can sort of do best practice right from the start instead of like having years of trial and error. Yeah. Um, yeah. And altitude training is like a key one like that. Like you can't just go to altitude and expect you're going to get the best benefits if you don't prepare well and train well and take iron supplements, eat well, like all those things. Like a lot of our research, um, people talk about responders, non-responders, but usually non-responders are just you haven't um, prepared well for the camp or you've overtrained or you've gone in and lost too much weight, you haven't taken iron supplements, you've been low in ferritin. So yep. they're things that we try to avoid when we go to altitude training. Yep. Um, and the same with heat. Like It's not just a matter of going into a hotter environment and hammering yourself for a week before competition. You've got to do it at the right times and get the adaptation so you can be best prepared for competing in the heat. Uh-huh. So. Yeah, so no, so good. And um, when you um, moved to um, the AIS to do your PhD in two thousand and one, um, was Dick Telford there? And how much of a part did he have in terms of um, like helping you sort of um, sort of with your with what you've learned and your career? And um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Dick's a, like a real important person in my career. I, I suppose I came here and I trained with his squad. So Dick coached me for those sort of early years when I ran probably my best 800s, 1500s. Like I had the opportunity to compete with multiple Olympians and some of the top Australian distance runners, middle distance runners. Um, and Dick also had that applied knowledge. So he headed up the uh, AIS Sports Science um, in physiology and nutrition and had that sort of practical experience. Um, so I suppose my research was guided more for the practical knowledge rather than just the, the theoretical side of it and publishing. So even though I've published 80 odd papers, like a lot of it is trying to like, what's the usability of that information? Like how can I um, give that to coaches or athletes to improve performance? So yep. I suppose the physiology and sports science, I see that as, like the key part of like a sports scientist is how to, um, I suppose, try new things, get new information, gain knowledge, but then how can that be implemented into a program? Um, yep. Yeah, because it's not easily always seamless. Like you sort of know the right parts of it. You can't just say, yeah, you've got to do this if it doesn't fit in with the program. So, um, yeah, it's taking the important parts out and how that can be applied to a training program. Did you always know that you wanted um, a career in sort of exercise physiology? I always knew I wanted a career in sport, yep. yeah, and like um, like applied sports. So obviously I've always loved competing in multiple sports, watching sports. Um, yeah, like I always was going to do sports science at university. I didn't know where that was going to lead, but I suppose, yeah, like I always excelled at the – the physiology, the exercise, biochemistry, all that sort of aspects of how the body works um, and was really interested in it. Um, yeah, and I, I suppose, yeah, just be, having the ability um, to be in that sort of high-performance environment working with athletes and coaches is, yeah, what I've always wanted to do. Yep. I didn't really see that I wanted to, yeah, get into research. I think that's why I came to Canberra. Like, I did honours at Melbourne Uni and didn't really see myself as an academic doing research for the sake of research um yeah like i really wanted to be in that applied setting so like the opportunity coming here was perfect yeah and um then what are um your so the number one of the um research articles i, I found was um on min, minimalist uh runners and and barefoot running um and like you do use like a fair bit of shoe, shoes that ha- have like not as much support like you have to use your foot more and yeah yeah, i always sort of thought that maybe that's also why you're so strong too like your foot sort of stayed 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 strong um yeah yeah what are your thoughts on on that oh yeah yeah i think it's good like uh yeah i don't think it's probably practical for everyone just to run barefoot like i think like shoes still do serve a purpose but i think um becoming strong in your sort of your lower limbs and feet is like really important for injury prevention and efficiency. So yeah, I, for the last 10 or 15 years, I've, yeah, I could put any pair of shoes and do any training in them. Like, and um, I've built enough strength to be able to do that. So um, yeah, like I, I do long runs in 
like the lightest pair of racing flats. Um, did a lot of work in the Nike Freeze, uh, yep. the 3.0, so the most minimal. Um, and yeah, when you first start it, like it's different because you haven't got the support and you're basically putting a lot more load on your lower body and your feet to um, be able to absorb the forces and stabilize yourself. Um, but I think injury prevention is critical. Um, in conjunction with a good strength program, like I think obviously you've got to build build the ability using both. So like I don't think you're going to get it all from just running in minimal shoes if you're not strong enough. But I think combining with a good strength program, um, yeah, you should be able to run at anything for any distance. Um, like I don't think you get all your injury prevention out of a stability or support of shoes. Um, I think you do it from your musculature and your tendon system and getting that strong. So, yeah, it's definitely a tool that can be used. Um, mm-hmm. In the gym, we do all our drills and a lot of our exercises barefoot um, just to get that sort of feel, that strength, that yep. um, proprioception. Um, so, yeah, and no, I think it's I think it's good for everyone. No, I agree. And and then um, for like, um, you know, so, someone who's, uh, you know, back home and they're, you know, just trying to get a bit fitter and they're training for, say, the local park run, um, and they're really enjoying their running. Um, I mean, how much would you recommend um, scrutinizing and analyzing things like heart rate? And um, I mean, or, or like, um, how much would you recommend um, going to um, get some testing so that you know, um, uh, like your certain um, anaerobic threshold and your zones? Um, yeah, how much would you monitor blood lactate or or um, or perceived exertion um, mm. in training? Like, how analytical yeah. would you get? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think like you're talking about someone who's just like in there and running a park run, trying to be the best. Like, you probably wouldn't get too caught up with yep. that. I think consistency of running and improving your techniques probably a lot more important. I think it probably becomes more important when you sort of get into a level where you're doing quite a bit of training and you're trying to yep. recover from different sessions. Yep. Um, so a lot of people when they're young basically will go as hard as they can every session they do. Um, and obviously when you're not doing much training, like that's good. Like, yeah, you train hard, you improve, but when you're doing like big training loads, like recovery between sessions becomes important and there's different emphasis of different sessions. So if you're talking about anaerobic threshold, you need to know what your threshold is. So if you're doing some five minute efforts and your threshold's three tens per kilometer or one seventy five heart rate, then that's the pace you should run at. Yeah. That's where you're trying that's where you're at at the moment. You're trying to improve that. If you start going two fifty fives, yeah, you're over your threshold and it's probably going to impact your next day. And yep. I've seen it with runners. Um yeah, Dion's a good example. Like when he first started training with a group, he, oh, yeah. he wanted to push himself every session. And yeah. he basically would have a good week and then he'd have two weeks where he is in a big hole. Um and just sort of getting them to understand what we're trying to get out of a certain session. Um, and that's where I can see somewhere like a, a step test to work out um, your threshold, your heart rate zone, your speed zone is good for an athlete sort of transitioning into elite running so they yep. can understand this is what it actually feels like. And after you've done it for a while, you, you know what it feels like, you know what sort of pace to run and you don't have to have a heart rate monitor every session. Yep. But I think in that sort of transition period, it can be really useful. Um yeah, so I think you need to be doing enough training and you need some sort of periodization in your week for it to be beneficial. If you're training twice a week and running a park run, it probably isn't as yep. necessary. I think yep. just getting that consistency of running and mechanics is the most important thing for those people. Um, yeah, so, yeah I, I do a lot of work at primary school with like my kids and other kids and yep. I do a lot of work on technique just because I think that's the age where you can sort of ingrain some good habits yep. um so we do a lot of drills we do like yeah stuff like lunges single leg holds like um skipping um bum kicks um some bounding some hopping like just trying to get them to utilize the right muscles and we'll always do that as part of our running so yep and they're things anyone can do like you don't have to spend a lot of time working on mechanics you can do a lot of drills and like basic strength exercises just before every run so I think that's probably more use than trying to get too analytical in different training zones. Um, yeah, get the basics right first and then work from there. Yep. Yeah, no, I like it. And then I probably just wanted to like enlighten 
um, some of the listeners on like also um, before altitude and after altitude, um, sometimes um, uh, your runners um, get blood, blood tests just to monitor the changes yep. in um, hemoglobin mass and hematocrit. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, do you see like getting blood tests um, as a, you know, important part um, if you are, you know, trying to try to get to that next step as a runner and you're getting a bit more serious? Yep. yep. So I suppose there's um, like two answers to that. So I yep. think basic blood tests aren't going to measure adaptations because um, when you do a blood test and measure hematocrit and hemoglobin, they're concentrations. So they're yeah, okay. obviously reflective of your red blood cells, but they're also reflective of your hydration status, your total yep. um, plasma volume. And basically you could have a change in hemoglobin concentration with no change in red blood cells just because you're a bit dehydrated or yeah, okay. your posture. Like There's a lot of things. So I don't think you can make any definitive um, decisions on whether they've changed their red blood cells based on a basic blood test. So what we do is yep. called hemoglobin mass test so we measure the total amount of hemoglobin on its own in the body so we do that via carbon monoxide rebreathing so Mm -hmm. for those who know about carbon monoxide it's like a poisonous gas um, but it's got a great affinity for hemoglobin so basically four times the affinity than oxygen so if we give um, athletes are known dose, which they rebreathe for two minutes. We measure the amount bound to hemoglobin before and afterwards, and then by a sort of a concentration dilution factor, we can work out the total amount of hemoglobin in their body, um, which is irrespective of um, posture, hydration, all those things. So, um, yeah, so the average person isn't going to have as- um, access to a test like that. Um, but places like Flagstaff, they've got a lab that would do it. So if you're an elite athlete and you wanted to see how you're adapting, you could organise to go into Hypo 2, which is like the sports science facility who could do that. Um, obviously, we do it here at AIS. A lot of the state academies can do it as well. So um, if you want to measure your red blood cell adaptation to altitude, that's what you would have to do. Um, yeah. Saying that, um, I don't think it's necessary to do every time you go to altitude because I know people who have had no change in hemoglobin mass. There's obviously errors associated with the test. There's like different adaptations that are happening in the body as well. So red blood cells aren't performance. So there's a lot of things happening at altitude at a muscular level um, which are going to give you better performance. So with that, do you mean like um, increased mitochondria, increased capillarization at the muscle level? Yeah, ability to like handle anaerobic um, exercise better. Yeah, so, like tolerate lactic acid better. Oh yeah. When you're at altitude, there's less oxygen in the air, so your anaerobic system becomes better. Okay. A lot of the training's more anaerobic, so you get used to um, yeah less oxygen in the air and like utilizing the anaerobic system better. So um, yeah, like there's buffering aspects that you improve at altitude, you become more, like you said, efficient. You use oxygen because there's less of it in the air, you become more efficient at using it. So yep. if, when you go down to sea level and you got more, um, you still can produce energy with less oxygen. So, um, that whole efficiency aspect, um, is improved. So yeah, red blood cells, what everyone knows, but it's not the only adaptation from altitude. So, yep. um, yeah, it's nice to do. Like, it's nice to, and I suppose what we've used it on the most part is to try and work out what's the optimal dose and time spent at altitude, what's the optimal height to go to, all those sort of factors. Um, so we can sort of have some specifications to coaches. If you're going to go altitude, you should be going for three to four weeks and you should be going to altitude at this height if you can. Yes. So that's how we used it more rather than a one off adaptation from an athlete yeah um, what altitude yeah, it was at um uh more than 1800 meters above sea level or yeah 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 like i think yeah i think 1800 to 2200 in my opinion is like the best altitude to get maximal adaptations that's not saying that falls creek doesn't have a place like it definitely does yep. um but um i suppose if I had to go anywhere, I'd go that 1,800 to 2,200 metres. I just feel that that's sort of probably got the the maximal adaptations and still you can train at a good level. Obviously, if you go too high, training gets um, impacted a lot more. 
Yeah. Um, so I've trained at like sort of 23, 24, 25, and that's a lot harder to get those quality sessions done. Um, and there's some evidence that if you go too high, you sort of get a bit of muscle dysfunction as well. So, um, yeah, roughly speaking, like 1,800 to 2,200 is optimal. 1,600 definitely still benefits. Um, yeah, and then there's also like the other aspect of using simulated altitude and tensile chambers as well, um, which which are useful. I, I still think training adaptations at altitude um, probably outweigh, but if that's sort of you want to be at home and you haven't um, got the capacity to go away to an altitude training camp, then like tents and chambers can be good in the preparation. Yeah, no, that's that's such good information, Philo. Um, and I feel like I've taken up enough of your time. You know, it's, it's been 60 minutes and I'm so grateful for you devoting your time. Um, just one last question. I just wanted to ask, is um, uh, Susan, um, Luca and Misha coming to Flagstaff this year? They're not, no. but they're going to come to Tokyo. So, okay. um, yeah, sort of got all that organised. So they're going to come over and watch um, all the athletes and, yeah, me guide Jared as well on the 5K. So they're pretty excited about that. <laughs> um, yeah, they've never been over to a major championship. Obviously, I've been, um, yeah, to most major championships since 2013 and the Luca and Misha have grown up with all these athletes that I coach. So um, I think it's going to be pretty special to have them over there for them and also for the athletes. So, like, I think sort of form a bit of a bond with, like, the people you're around. So, um, yeah, no, really looking forward to having them there. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome, Philo. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think probably leave it at that. Uh, was there anything else that you thought might be worth adding or? Nah, it's all good. No, nah, that's, nah. Yeah. I was really happy with that. And, uh, yeah, no, nah, thanks so much for your time. Perfect. Yeah. Awesome. All right. See you, mate. Be Dano.